Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. We're going to take a moment um, for the next couple weeks and just move, step away from the book of Acts for a little bit. We'll be back there um, to wrap that up. But to talk a little bit about what I'm going to call ownership and stewardship. And I'll be perfectly frank with you. The purpose of that is because one of the things that is Mark Fellowship Bible Church, if you've been coming for any period of time, is that we simply ask ourselves the question before we make a decision, what does the Bible say? Now, that's important for some of you who came from a denominational background because we don't have a headquarters any place where we can call and say, what are we supposed to say? We don't have a preaching schedule that's sent down to us from a denominational head that says, here's where you'll be this Sunday. We are left, literally, totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit to simply say, what does the Bible say about a matter? And um, so to be frank with you and, and just straight upfront about it, Um, You have heard us talk a little bit about our upcoming budget year, which starts in um, July. Our our budget year runs from July to the following June. And the reason for that is our ministry is tied to the fall. So all of that planning takes place and preparation of that planning takes place going into the fall, not January to December. You say, well, are we talking about it then because the church is short on funds? No, that's not why we're talking about it. We're talking about it because before we ask you to affirm something as members and as a congregation, we just want to pause and say, what does the Bible say about it? Now, if you're coming uh, here for the uh, first couple Sundays, you say, great, this is what I always knew churches would be. They always talk about giving, okay? And I want to tell you, this is not going to, that's not going to, hopefully, that's not what today's discussion is going to feel like. But secondly, we don't always talk about giving, right? But we do want to ask the question, what does the Bible say about something? And we're going to talk about it both in terms of giving and serving. You say, well, if you're just going to vote on the budget, why do you got to talk about serving? Well, because we operate on a very limited staff for the purpose, for a number of reasons. But one is so that more money can make it out to the mission field. And so we operate on a limited staff so that volunteers fill a lot of those roles. So that when you actually vote to affirm the budget, you're actually voting for uh, a staff deficit, okay? Because just uh, even this morning when Justin's leading up here, everybody up here is volunteering. When people are leading your children that you just took your kids to, they're volunteering. And so when you talk about giving, you have to talk about serving at the same place. Now with that in mind, I want to take you to another passage that just kind of sets us up. I just want to prepare your hearts this morning in Luke chapter 12 for what we're about to talk about. So will you stand with me for the reading of the word as we honor God's word together? Luke chapter 12, I'll pick up the reading at verse 15. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. 
And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So, Jesus said, is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Go ahead and be seated. I love the way that Jesus takes that parable and immediately starts to talk about not simply the rich man, but all the rest of us who have a tendency to worry about the things that we have. Now, we're going to talk about two things this morning. Actually, we're only going to talk about one. We'll get to stewardship next week. We're going to talk about ownership. And when I use that word, you probably, at least as an American, think in terms of owning things or the fact that... um, you know, you can probably even tell me to some degree how much of your home you own and how much Bank of America owns, okay? Um, or maybe Bank of America owns you for your sake of your house, all right? Those of you who are homeowners know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so here's the thing. When we think in terms of ownership, we think of things we own. I don't want you to think about it that way. I want you to answer a question with me, and here it is. How am I to understand ownership in the Bible? And this was a great study for me, honestly. It just, it shaped the way I was thinking about it differently. How am I to understand ownership in the Bible? Because the Bible actually talks about ownership. Are you ready for this? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is what we read to Christians. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You say, wait, wait, Phil, I thought you were going to talk about the things I owned. No, 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 no. You have to lay out a theology of what the Bible says about ownership, God's ownership, before we ever get to the things we think we own. In fact, it's it's fascinating to me. This passage in 1 Corinthians 6 is a passage that unpacks the issue that we should all flee from sexual immorality. But it builds it and, and, and solidifies it on this theological position. It's just not, hey, do good, don't do things you shouldn't do. It's you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You are not your own. Now, to understand what it means to be bought with a price, I got to teach you a little bit of the Greek language, okay? Because the book, the word redeemed actually runs, uh, our English word translated bought or redeemed or ransomed is actually a combination of three words. So I just want to kind of walk you through these because I want you to see not only how you were purchased and how you were bought, but not only that, but the purpose of God purchasing you and your buying. So this is going to be, you were bought with a price. In three words, agorazo, exazorazo, and then lutru. So here it is. Let's talk about it briefly. Agorazo means to buy in the slave market. Now, you may not have thought about yourself in that capacity when you came to Christ. But here's the thing. If you had a habit, a, a, a difficulty that you were always giving yourself to, that you couldn't say no to, then you were a slave. You say, what? no, 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 Phil, I'm not a slave. I'm a free person. Hold on. Romans chapter 6 says, um, do you not know that, that, that what you choose, to, that those that you choose to obey, to that you are a slave? It's this reminder that we were purchased in the slave market. And that's this word, agorazo, found right here in 1 Corinthians 6.20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Now, when you see bought with a price, you don't think of yourself as being in the slave market, but that's exactly what it's saying. 
You and I were slaves to our desires, and we were slaves to the sin that we couldn't help, and we just kept doing. That's the first word. But here's the second word, and I want you to see it, ex agorazo, which means to buy out of the slave market, to buy for oneself. In fact, uh, just briefly, look at at the two words here. Agorazo means that someone went into the slave market to make a purchase, Ex-Azarazo means that they went in intentionally to buy someone and take them out. Right. That's very different. Um, when you go shopping for things, um, how many of you go shopping only when you are looking for something specific? Can I see your hands? Okay, okay the rest of you, put your hands down. How many of you go shopping just because you like to go shopping? Okay. A few honest people here, all right? Okay, so when you go shopping because you see something specific that you want, okay, that's you doing ex-Azarazo. You're going into the shopping mall or, the, or Amazon or wherever you're going. You're going there because you specifically want to purchase something. Now, here's how I want you to think about this. When we use the word redeem and Christ came for us, he didn't just generally walk through the population and say, hmm, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one. He came looking for you. That's powerful. If you ever wondered, like, Phil, I don't even know that I'm worth very much. I want to tell you, you were worth enough that Christ came looking for you. Not just anybody, but you. In fact, just notice that word, exazerazo, used here is the word redeem. That's how our English Bibles translate it. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's Jesus. That's Christmas. Here he comes. Okay? Why? To ex azarazo, to redeem those who were under the law. That is, we couldn't help but break the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. I love this. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may not have thought about it that way when you trusted Jesus. But when you trusted Jesus, you moved out of slavehood and you moved into son and daughtership. You were no longer the slave serving at the table. You were invited to a place at the table. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. But we're not done. There's one more word, and it's the word lutro. And that word, translated as ransom or bought or redeemed in the Bible is meant to buy for the intention of setting free. Okay, now just for a moment, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. You were in the slave market. Christ came into the slave market when he came in, when he was born into this world. He came with you in mind. He came in, he purchased you, and when he walked you out, he set you free. In fact, let me show you that in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, for all people, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We sung about that. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Who gave himself for us to redeem. There's your word, Lutro. Us from all the lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Sounds just like you were bought with a price. You are Christ's possession who are zealous for good works. Now, I don't know about you, but... I I, kind of wrestled with, is there a way that I can explain what it's like for someone to know that they're going to about to die and then suddenly find freedom? And I was taken back to a story of a friend of mine 
who a number of years ago went to the mission field. And when he got to the mission field, almost immediately with that particular mission, he was called up to another role and responsibility. He was just there thinking he was going to learn the language. But they sent him off to a completely different country because a terrorist had captured one of their missionaries. And they had the responsibility of with that particular uh, terrorist group interacting with them to try to get this guy set free. Now, for just a moment, understand something. That most mission agencies I know will say, listen, if you are captured by a terrorist, this is kind of standard policy, just know we will not pay a ransom. Because if we pay a ransom, every other missionary in the field becomes susceptible to being caught as a terrorist by a terrorist group. But we will promise you that we will get your family out of harm's way. That's exactly what happened. And this particular mission agency put these, this man and his wife and three other couples in charge of trying to get him out. And this is what it sounded like. Okay? My friend described it to me this way. He said, Phil, this particular terrorist organization would call us once a week. And they'd say, we want the money. We want the money. We're going to take him apart limb by limb. Click. They'd hang up the phone. And he said, we'd pray and we'd strategize and we'd pray and we'd strategize. Eventually, he said, we started to work with the police organization that was there in that particular government. And one of the policemen, one of the, one of the police organization, from the police organization in that particular nation, infiltrated the terrorist group as an undercover guy. And he said he, working in there, um, began to win the trust of the, of the terrorist organization leader so that when he said, listen, the mission is going to pay the money, and they went for the money, he said, just trust me to keep the man, and I'll take care of him. If they don't pay, then I'll take care of him, okay? He's an undercover policeman working. Now, know this, that a few months earlier, the terrorist organization had said on video, we're going to take him apart limb by limb, and let us show you how we're going to do it, and that literally, they cut his thumb off on the video, they said, we just want to show you, this is what we're going to do to this guy until you pay us. So the man that, that's, that's the captive, he believes he's going to die. Okay? He honestly believes he's going to die. So the terrorist group leaves, and he is entrusted with the, with, the, with the particular policeman that's undercover. The policeman with the bag over his head takes him out, puts him in a car. He goes from car to car to car. And finally, that car pulls over. He thinks he's going to a death camp to die. That car pulls over. They pull the, 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 the uh, bag off the top of his head. And he looks at this man who's in a, in, in a police uniform. And he chuckles and says, wow, you guys are so good in this organization. You even have police uniforms. Okay. And the man said, that's because I am a policeman. Are you ready for this word? And I'm taking you to freedom What is that like? Can you just for a moment imagine that degree of fear of death going from that position to one sentence and taking you to freedom? That is what happened when you placed your faith in Christ. That's it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Death was the penalty we all deserved. And God reached down and said, I will buy you with the intention of setting you free. Now, that's great. Because in Galatians chapter 5, we read, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Just say this with me. But through what? 
serve one another, which means you're beginning to see that God's ownership of you is very different than you may have thought it was. You may have thought, hey, I trusted Christ. I promised eternity in heaven, right? This is great. Good package. I can do whatever I want down here. One day I'll be in heaven with God. That's not how God's looking at it. He's saying, listen, I didn't set you free so that you could just do whatever you want. I set you free that through love you can serve one another. And now, go back and look at this. We're still answering this question. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's answer this question. Here it is. How am I to understand ownership in the Bible? I was purchased by Christ to serve others for the glory of God. Okay? I was purchased by Christ to serve others for the glory of God. When, when I started to think about how I wanted to talk about this issue of stewardship and, and how we see our participation in the body of Christ, I decided that rather than tell you something, I would rather ask it to you in the form of a question. Because I want you to go home and kind of ponder these questions. Here's why. Because your participation in the giving at Fellowship Bible Church or in the serving and volunteering at Fellowship Bible Church is not tied to what I, what I tell you to do or what any of the elders tell you to do. It's tied to what God lays on your heart to do. How am I to understand ownership in the Bible? I was purchased by Christ to serve others for the glory of God. So let's ask a question. Here it is. What are my personal resources? Stop. Wrong question. Because if you're owned, you should go like this. What are his personal resources? It's not about you and I saying, well, I have this portion and I give a little bit here and I do this with that and I, I volunteer a little bit of time with my free time. Okay? It's about us saying, wait, I was purchased by Christ for God's glory. Not for me, but for God's glory. So I need to ask the question, what are his personal resources? You say, well, hold on, Phil. Now I'm kind of wishing like, you know, like this was a shell game. Like I wouldn't have trusted Christ if I'd known it was, I was going to have to belong to him. Okay. Hey, everybody belongs to him, frankly. It's just that some are going to have to wait until they die to discover it. Right. Psalm 24 says it this way. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. That's the right of the creator. The creator has the right over all of creation. For he laid the earth's foundations of the seas and built it on the ocean depths. The, the issue is not simply that, people, that, that we belong to him as his personal possession, but he came down to buy us back and so that we might say, everybody else is one day going to have to give an answer to him too. But I know that in advance. So knowing that in advance, what are his personal resources? And I want to give you three. Okay, Here's three. Time gifting, and financial means. Time has value. Time has value. Gifting, abilities are God-given, okay? And financial means, wealth leaves impact. So there's three things working here. Time has value, abilities are God-given, and wealth leaves impact. These are your personal resources. Well, they're God's. You get it, right? Let's talk about that first one. Time has value. It's a commodity to be invested Time is a commodity to be invested. Okay? Now, it's going to get a little uncomfortable right about here. Okay? Probably going to get more uncomfortable here than it gets about financial means. Because not everybody has a great deal of financial means, but everybody has the same amount of time. Okay? 
Let me just talk with you about this for a second. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is what we read. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let me talk about time for a moment. The Bible uses two Greek words to describe time. One is chronos time. That's chronology. That is a chronos. That's a very specific order to time, like a sundial back there for them, like our Apple watches for us. We are tracking time. It has a minute, it's got a day, it's got a time. It's on a calendar. There's another kind of time, too, which is kairos time. That's a Greek word for time. And that's the word used here. It speaks of making the most of the moment. It's not tied, really, to chronos time. It's not tied to, hey, let's have coffee at 12 o'clock and it'll be the best conversation you've ever had. It's about the fact that you're having coffee at 12 o'clock And it becomes the best conversation you ever had. Kairos time is the moment of time. And we don't always know when that happens. Sir Francis Bacon said hundreds of years ago something like this. We have only this moment sparkling like a star in our hand and melting like a snowflake. Which means that that kairos time, that moment in time, isn't always there. You don't know when you're going to have it. As a parent, you know this. Sometimes as a spouse, you might know this. As an individual, you might know this. That you had a conversation with someone that all of a sudden was like life-altering. But you didn't know that conversation was coming. And that's because we misuse what I'm going to call our free time. Free time isn't free. It's costly. Once it's squandered on self, it can't be recovered for others. And I'm going to share that with you by way of a very personal illustration that probably will resonate with you. The last couple days, Kim has asked me on a couple of occasions, hey, you want to do this with me? Okay. And I have said, I don't have, say it for me, time right now. Okay. And one, she said, you want to go for a walk with me? I don't have time. Yesterday, she said, hey, you want to run up and see the grandchildren? Ugh. Can't believe I said it. I don't have, say it. Now, the truth of the matter is, I misspent my free time. And so now, when the Kairos moment comes, it's true. I don't really have time. I have something I have to get done right then because I didn't spend my time back here properly. If I just spent my free time better, and it's not really free, it's costly, what happens is I squandered it back here, and now when I have a chance to see the grand girls and, or take a walk with Kim, I actually say I don't have time. Okay. Now, I didn't ask her, but I'm sure, like any other spouse, she's thinking, really? You don't have time? I saw what you were doing two hours ago. Okay. And that's probably true. But in this moment, right here, I've lost my Kairos opportunity. Here's how I want you to think about your time. It's not yours. It's not yours. Your spending of it as if it's yours is you not thinking properly about who owns it. When we say it's a personal resource, time, then we're saying, listen, I should be asking good questions about how I'm spending it because I can't assume that when a Kairos moment shows up, that really special moment that's like a God-ordained moment, and there's that opportunity to interact with someone or, or an individual, I can lose that because I misspent my time earlier. Not all time works like Kronos time on a calendar, on a watch, on a clock. 
Here's your second resource, personal resource. Gifting. Abilities are God-given. They are intended to be used for others. Okay? Abilities are God-given. They are intended to be used for others. Now, one of the reasons we set Fellowship Bible Church up in such a way that it requires a lot of volunteer effort is because we deem that as actually a biblical paradigm. That in a sense, you volunteering, you helping, you serving is setting up the opportunity for you to do exactly what God has gifted you to do. In fact, in many situations, you're probably better at it than someone else who would step in and do it. Let me show you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. The New Living Translation renders it this way. A spiritual gift is given to each of us. The other English translations actually say that there's a manifestation of the Spirit. That almost sounds like an infection that you got, okay? Here's what I want you to see. It's a spiritual gift, that's what it's speaking of, that is given to each of us so we can help each other. Not so that somebody else can help them, but so that you can help them. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. That's, that's beautiful. That means that, listen, when you became a believer in Jesus, he literally gifted you with certain abilities. And those abilities are necessary in the body. You say, well, what are those? We're going to talk about that more next week. We kind of unpack this. So just kind of lay in the groundwork for it. You have abilities that nobody else has. And you need to use those opportunities. You need to use those abilities for the sake of of others, for the sake of others. Here's the final idea, financial means. Wealth leaves impact. Wealth leaves impact. It can destroy or it can reward. Financial means, wealth leaves impact. It can destroy or it can reward. And if you have your Bibles, just look at this passage in Matthew 6. This is Jesus speaking again. It's all the word of God, but Jesus himself is giving us his firsthand occasion of it here. Wealth leaves impact. It can destroy or it can reward. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and dust and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You say, well, Phil, that doesn't sound like the wealth is destroying. That sounds like time or thieves are destroying my wealth. Okay? That's true. That can happen. But that's not what the rest of the text says. The rest of the text will speak to you about how wealth, if you're not careful with it, can destroy you. The text says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just understand that when we think of our financial means as ours, then we suddenly think of how we will spend it as opposed to when we think of it as his, that is God's. We're thinking completely differently about how we ought to engage it. In fact, watch this. This is, this is your caution. Immediately we read in Matthew six twenty two a passage that doesn't quite seem to make sense. What is it doing here? The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Here's what it's saying. When your eye is turned to flashy things that you want, that you like, that you think you have to have, in that moment, just know this, you're all of a sudden drawn away and your inner heart, your inner person is saying, I'd be happy if I had that. 
Remember how we started this passage when Jesus warned in Luke chapter uh, 12 about the idea of covetousness, that when our heart wants something and we begin to fill our heart with what we want, Jesus here is even more clear. If you're not careful, he says, your eye will look for something that you'll want, and the more you look at it, the more you'll want it, and it's only revealing that your eye is filled, your heart is filled with darkness, things that cannot satisfy. Here's the best way I've ever heard it said. If you can't be content with what you have, you'll never be content with what you want. That's right. If you can't be content with what you have, you'll never be content with what you want. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, your eye is being drawn to something. You think if I have it, I'll be happy. I don't own a boat, um, but I'm told that for people who own yachts, there's something known as 10-foot fever, okay? which means the moment they buy their yacht, they see one that's 10 feet longer, and that's the one they want. Okay? Now, that's kind of how it is, right? We all have a bit of 10-foot fever in us. We see something, we think we'll really be happy, we just hold on to it, hold on to it, hold on to it, but eventually our eyes are drawn to something else. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus reminds us that the best protection of this is to realize that our financial means is not our own. It's his. And suddenly we look at it very differently. We look at it as managers or stewards of what he has given us. By the way, this understanding, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of snapshot into next week. This understanding kind of changed the way I started to think about my giving and about other people giving. If I understood that God owns everything, Psalm 24, uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, he owns all of it, then God is the financial manager who is saying, I'm moving money from this person's account over to this account. He's an account manager. And how do we know how he moves the money from accounts? As God himself lays on your heart to participate, that's how you know. If, If you're praying and planning and thinking through it, and God is laying something on your heart to do, guess what? Do not deny that. You're just the account manager. You're the account manager. And Jesus warns us of this when he goes on in Matthew 6 to say it this way, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's right. What he's saying is, listen, if you start to long and think you'll be happy if you have it, you're not thinking properly about the financial means. That is, that God is the one who has given it. Here it is, time, gifting, and financial means. Time has value. It's a commodity to be invested. Gifting, abilities are God-given. They are intended to be used for others, not for yourself. Financial means, wealth leaves impact. It can destroy or it can reward. And what you and I do with that, we either participate in our personal destruction or we engage in the reward that God is offering us. There, frankly, is no reward like giving something away. Nothing like it. Okay, so let me answer these two questions for you. Here's the first one. How might I understand ownership in the Bible? I was purchased by Christ to serve others for the glory of God. Pure and simple. How am I, what am I to do, or what are his personal resources? Three of them. Time, gifting, and financial means are to be used for his glory, not my own. This is what it means to understand ownership. That these things that he has given are not for my glory. They're not for your glory. 
though we sometimes use them that way. They're for his glory. Here's the thing you got to know. Short-term investment, long-term investment. If you were to ask any financial manager what's the best investment to have, they're going to say, listen, you got to understand that there's a long-term investment. So let me give you a 100-year investment. Because 100 years from now, everybody in this room isn't going to be here. Okay? Even if you're young and even if you've got great DNA, sorry, okay, you're not going to be here. So the real question is, what will you have done with your time and with your gifting and with your financial means? Because 100 years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is just what we sung about. It's all about his glory. He is the one who is worthy to be praised. You say, Phil, are you setting us up just so that you can plead with us for money? No, 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 no. I believe that is fully God's responsibility to your heart. It's not mine. But it is my responsibility as your pastor to say, this is what the Bible says about it. And as the the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to your heart, God's going to talk to your heart. I don't have to tell you what the church's needs are. I don't have to tell you any of that. I just have to say, listen... This is what the scripture says. Now, for just a moment, pause. Let's forget that portion and just answer this question. Do you own you or does Christ own you? Because whatever you came in today thinking about the things that make you happy, the things you want to pursue, I just want to remind you, you are the slave, Romans 6, of whatever you choose to obey. And you and I should say, man, that was such a powerful price to be paid for me. 1 Peter chapter 1 actually uses the word redeem and says we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. That is, Christ came into your slave market. He came looking for you. And he said, that's the one I want right there. And he bought you and took you out to set you free. So that with gratitude for all of your earthly life, you could say, my life is not my own. It is Christ. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning. We rejoice in how it brings conviction, how it brings comfort, how it reminds us of things that don't even have to do with some of the things we talked about. How the Spirit of God can just take a verse or a passage and crank it into our heart. And so we're humbled by that, and we're grateful. With your heads bowed, can I just ask you a question? Maybe it's time for you to say, listen, Phil, you just made clear to me my problem. I've been trying to live for myself, and I've never put my faith in Christ. But I'm hearing today, through song and through the word, that he gave his life for me that I can trust him. Wherever you are this morning, if God is working in your heart and bringing that degree of conviction, maybe you've never placed your faith in Christ, but you've begun to understand that you should. I just want to invite you this morning to do that. If you're afraid of how cruel it will be or how difficult it will be, I will tell you, it is not like that. Serving one who has given his life for you and yet is the creator of the entire universe. There is no joy like it. 
but you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You have to say, I know I need what Christ did on my behalf. But I'm thankful that he came. He came to redeem me. If that's your desire this morning, if that's what your heart, is that's what God is saying to your heart, to your inner man, then just let me invite you to pray with me. It's not the words that save you, but it is the truth that you're placing your faith in him and him alone for your salvation. You may just want to voice the prayer there in your mind, something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I know I need a savior. I believe you died on the cross for me. Please save me from my sin. Be my savior. Take a moment and thank him for it. And for the rest of us who've known Jesus for a longer period of time, it's just a great opportunity for us to pause and express our gratitude to the one who paid so great a price for us. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the fact that we can serve you and serve others, and we can do it all to the glory of God, something we could not do prior to putting our faith in you. Help us live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.